Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films filmmakers and genres that consensus has deemed important and thus i have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification this month i'm exploring some religious horror films as recommended by rick guzman and chelsea bennington of spooky doings and in this week's episode i'll be wrapping up the month and the theme with gregory wyden's 1995 film the prophecy and it's important that i include the word the prophecy because i think last week i just said prophecy which Um, is an entirely different movie made in the 70s, which I actually have not seen. Um, You might be familiar with the name Gregory Wyden because he is the the creator of uh, not just this uh, franchise, the Prophecy franchise, which includes five movies. Um, I think it's safe to say three or four of which I didn't even know existed. Um, And also the Highlander franchise. Um, He was the screenwriter for the original uh, Highlander film, and well, I believe the entire franchise, but um, true story, as a undergraduate in UCLA film school, um, sold uh, the spec script for Highlander for uh, $500,000. So um, if you were ever feeling accomplished, think about that, and then don't feel accomplished anymore. Uh, but also he did write uh, as well as the screenplay for Backdraft, which is a movie I actually really like, um, and kind of an underrated, um, tense uh, thrilling Ron Howard film with uh, Kurt Russell and one of the Baldwins. Uh, there's so many. Billy, maybe? Doesn't matter. Uh, but it's a, it's a pretty good movie. Um, he also wrote the sequel, uh, Backdraft 2, which nobody asked for. Um, but yeah, th- as far as I can tell, this is the only thing that Gregory Wyden actually directed, and kind of see why. <laughs> um, I, I was telling my wife about this movie by n- not detailing the plot, by saying that I loved this movie in middle school. And I think it has been that long since I've seen it, despite the fact that it came out in 95 when I was in middle school. I caught it on TV at some point a few years later. And as a kid, I think I maybe mentioned this in the original, uh, or the introductory episode with Rick and Chelsea at the beginning of the month. Um, I was always drawn to those supernatural stories in the Bible, you know, about devils and angels fighting and hierarchies and powers and... Um, you know, what is the, the dragon going to look like that they describe in the book of Revelation and Leviathan and the seven seals being open, all that kind of stuff. As a kid with a very active imagination, I was thrilled and excited by those stories. And so I think I was in a prime um, place to respond to this movie when I saw it because the prophecy does deal with all that stuff. The prophecy deals with a second war in heaven. And now if you are not uh, religious, if you were not raised in a kind of mainstream evangelical uh, society or um, environment, I guess would be a better word, such as I was, uh, and Chelsea and and Rick were as well, you may be thinking, what is the second war? Because I wasn't even aware of what the first war is. And um, to put a a very basic uh, primer, you know, tangent, primer, the word is actually supposed to be pronounced primer? Isn't that strange? If you look it up in a dictionary and, and print like uh, online and pronounce and hit the pronunciation button, it's supposed to be pronounced primer, and I've been pronouncing it wrong my entire life. But anyway, um, 
Yeah, and I'm I'm not entirely sure what the biblical basis of this thing or of this idea was, but the the assumption or the idea about the first war in heaven is that before um, people were uh, you know created or came around or maybe shortly after there was um, there was a, a war in heaven in which um, Lucifer the devil, uh, despite the fact that those are actually two different entities if you dig into the original language of of the original text but whatever lucifer the devil um satan whatever you want to call it um wanted to be um equal to god or even bigger than god but as a creation as an angel who was supposed to be subservient to god um was then cast out of heaven and into hell along with i think of uh, a third of um, the the uh, legions in hell. So basically, thirty three percent of heaven uh, who supported Satan, Lucifer, the devil, um, get cast out of heaven, live in hell, and that's you know for eternity where all bad people go after they die. Um, they don't go to heaven where the angels fly. I believe they go to a lake of fire and fright, and you don't see them again until the Fourth of July, uh, if I understand correctly. But um, maybe that even comes from the Book of Revelation. But that is basically the lore behind it. That is the first war in heaven. Um, and I think that is supposed to have happened before um, even people came around or even before creation, physical creation came around. And now if you're saying, how do you not know about this or how do you not know better about this? Um, you know, surprisingly, in 2020, when you're dealing with um, um, anti-racism and, and, and social justice and that kind of stuff, you don't really think a whole lot about um, the hierarchical battles between um celestial beings it just doesn't really come into practical application very often so it's it's been a while um my my religious focuses are are elsewhere but um so that's that's the idea that's the first war in heaven so this movie deals with or or is kind of set against the backdrop of or 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 the the contest or the background is there's a second war in heaven going on which has been raging for thousands of years um because angels the angels that have been loyal uh, to God, the angels that did not side with Lucifer, Satan, the devil, um, have been upset for a long, long time once God created man, sorry, people, because uh, despite the fact that people are inferior beings when it comes to their mortality and all sorts of stuff, um, it is believed that God favors them because they have souls. And now what that specifically means is kind of vague and sort of left to uh, devices, although um, Elias Codius does attempt to explain it quite poorly um, in a, a, a closing voiceover at the end of this film. But basically that idea of um, uh, having a soul implies having faith and that idea of following God, not because you were created to do so, but because you have chosen to do so, basically. Whether you truly believe it's the right thing to do or not you know it's it's that idea of of faith of um you know believing in things that we don't see or don't really understand but we choose to believe that they are there anyway which faith is a big part of, of christianity and religion because uh you don't see the physical manifestation of god you just kind of take it on, on on the word of the bible and people that have come before you um but and so that's an intriguing premise because of that idea of once again really appealed to, to middle school me, this idea of supernatural battles between angels and these higher powers and, and what's kind of going on. And, um, and even the idea, as I've gotten older, this idea of, of humankind being special for some reason, um, kind of a special part of creation and how that may seem kind of unfair to like, hey, we've been with you for thousands of years, literally since the dawn of, of existence, 
why do these things, as, as Walken, as Gabriel calls them, these talking monkeys, why do these talking monkeys have favor? Um, and so this war breaks out between, you know, the angels up in heaven who want to, um, you know, those who want to continue to follow and be obedient as represented by um, uh, Simon, who is, who is played, of course, um, by uh, Eric Stoltz. And then you have the other side, which is uh, Gabriel, as played by Christopher Walken, um, who, you know, it's not that they want to overthrow God or anything, but they just want it to go back to the way things were before people came around, when it could just be them all kind of chilling and hanging out with each other and being the superior favored creations. Um, this is a really interesting thing because um, the Bible doesn't speak a whole lot about angels. I, I mean, there are certainly mentions of them, you know, the Archangel Michael and Gabriel, certainly, and angels are, are, are deliverers of messages and kind of can be both um, beautiful and also uh, foreboding, if you will. Um, you know, even even the angel Gabriel came and told Mary, like, hey, you're going to have a, a baby who's going to be, um, you know, God incarnate. Uh, prepare yourself for that. Kind of a big deal. And then told Joseph, like, hey, don't leave your wife Mary um, because she's pregnant. Uh, it's not somebody else's baby. It's a uh, God incarnate. So be prepared. Kind of a big deal. Um, but other than that, there's, there's not a whole lot dug into the specifics of angels when it comes to hierarchies, thoughts, feelings, personalities, that kind of thing. So to, to take this idea of things that are outside of our experience or our comprehension and to fit them into a form which is comprehensible is a really interesting idea to me. Um, I don't remember if I mentioned this on the introductory episode, but I was fascinated by um, this introductory uh, philosophy course I took in college in which the, the idea is proposed that in order to understand God, we have to put God within a box of reason because that's the only way that we can comprehend something is if it's within the confines of our own limitations, mental, physical, emotional limitations. So the angels in this movie do appear as people which have senses. And, and I, I think it's, it is really interesting that you have the Gabriel character who's kind of licking viscera and blood and sniffing things because it's almost sort of like this thing, you know, um, taking a physical form, they are, they are clued into not even new senses, but a new way of interacting with reality that they have not been used to. So it's like, what is this smell? What is this? What is this taste? Uh, you know, kind of like, um, there, there's almost like a childlike discovery in that, which I think is a really interesting touch. Um, th this is all, I'm sorry, I've been talking for over 10 minutes now um, about interesting ideas and not so much about the film itself. And I guess ultimately where I, where I land on the prophecy is really interesting ideas that have been really bungled in their execution. Um, we start out, one of the first things we see in the film, uh, you know, aside from opening voiceover with Eric Stoltz, setting up this idea of the second war in heaven. But our, our, our surrogate into this world is Elias Codius um, as a, 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 well, now a cop, Thomas Daggett, who was who in, in line to become a priest but lost his faith. And he has this weird thing where he says, um, most people have lose their, lost their faith because God shows them or doesn't show them enough. Um, how many people lose their faith because God shows them too much? And you kind of have this 
opening scene in which he is struck by these horrific visions of this war and that somehow caused him to lose his faith. There's there's a uh, uh, there's some poignancy there that is not elaborated on or fleshed out very well. So we just have to take it for for given, basically, you know, take it as a given that like, okay, sure, he lost his faith and now he's kind of this hard, cynical cop. Fine. Uh, because that's going to set him on a path uh, to redemption or some type of character arc. Fine, 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 I'll take it. Um, also, side note, and this is just me being kind of nitpicky, but he quotes um, in voiceover a, a voice or a, a verse in the Bible um, from St. Paul about um, angels um, carrying such savage weaponry or something like that. It's completely fabricated. It's not a real verse. Um, and that kind of just bugs me in the sense of... Uh, you, you're, Gregory Wyden was was setting out to create a world that had its own kind of rules, and those rules were within kind of legend and mythology and theology of these supernatural beings, and he invents this one thing which is supposed to kind of make sense or, or push us into this character's emotional journey, and the fact that it's fabricated bugs me a little bit and kind of takes something away um, from the journey, but that's just me. But, I mean, there, there are a lot of interesting ideas... Um, and it's including um, little <laughs> pulling in references from not just the biblical text, but also other texts as well. I mean, Uziel, uh, that angel that dies at the beginning that, that Simon kills and, and looking at the, the symbol which is on his neck is from Kabbalah, which is um, not really an accepted um, Doctrine, theology, I must admit I, I know so little about Judaism, about um, Hebrew, about Kabbalah that I, I'm not prepared to speak on it, but I know it's not kind of uh, accepted by mainstream Judeo-Christianity thing. So it pulls that in there to kind of flesh out this world and kind of provide us with a little bit more information about it. Um, you know, it, it quotes this, this uh, mythical 23rd chapter of Revelation, which doesn't exist. Um, but, you know, that's kind of cool because it, it does add something to this, you know, this this fictional mythical second war which has been raging. Um, and, you know, even later on in the film when Gabriel is is trying to find which of these children has the soul of this um, horrific uh, general inside of her, basically. Um, he has a kid play a horn which shatters the window, which is just kind of funny in the moment, but also kind of a, a fun little nod to uh, a, a biblical allusion at, that's allusion, A-L, not I-L-L, -L. Um, allusion to that the end of the world will be signaled by trumpets blaring. So it's, it's, it's clear that Gregory Wyden kind of has, um, has engaged with biblical mythology, spirituality, um, these kind of extra textual things which um, create an interesting world in which there is a battle going on that is deciding the fate of humankind and eternity, um, and um, also making it somewhat complicated. Um, I misremember that I thought, you know, Gabriel was on the side of the devil, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, um, you know, when I first saw this movie, but it's actually not the case. The only reason that de that the devil played by Viggo Mortensen, wonderfully played by Viggo Mortensen, he's really having a fun time with this. Um, the only reason the devil gets involved is because of he's selfish, basically. Um, this war that's been going on in heaven means that um, no one is, you know, that people who are dying um, are not getting into heaven. 
And sure, as he says, uh, Hell's Doors are, are always open, even on Christmas, which I think is, is really fun. Um, he's upset at the fact that if Gabriel succeeds, there's basically going to be a second Hell. And he doesn't want that. He wants to be the only lord of his horrible domain. So that's interesting to kind of add a, a, a depth of dimension to a character which mainstream religion will tell you is is the worst of the worst, basically. Um and, and, and even kind of giving depth to the Gabriel character as well, in the sense of he, he seems like he's a, a very hurt child. God doesn't talk to me anymore, is what he says. And, and it's this idea of um, he's not doing it because he... I, I mean, he, he is doing it because he's a bad guy. He is the, the primary villain in this film. Um, but he also believes he's doing the right or the best thing. He's... He's spiteful, yes, but he's also kind of like, but he is a hurt child. Like, Dad, why did you do this to me? I like, I thought, I thought you loved me, and then you go and do this thing. It doesn't make him right, but it makes him understandable, which is supremely interesting. And Christopher Walken seems to be having a lot of fun with the role. That's that's one thing that I appreciate about this movie is that you know the the really good actors in it, um, and I do consider Elias Cody's and there. Elias Cody's is playing it pretty straight, but. Walken and Viggo Mortensen seem to be having a whole lot of fun with this. Um, Adam Goldberg, too, um, seems to be kind of enjoying himself. Although I have to say, his character doesn't make any sense. And, and that's one of my biggest gripes with this movie is um, it does create a world, uh, but it doesn't really fully explain all of its rules. Um, so, for instance, Adam Goldberg is clearly, uh, I think... A person that I just said clearly, and then I think, which uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but Adam Goldberg's character seems to be someone that was reanimated um, in the midst of killing himself, or maybe had succeeded in killing himself, that Gabriel reanimated, or that Gabriel kind of re-energized, similar to what he does to Amanda Plummer's character later on. Um, but why? Not really sure. I mean... He does make a joke, which I do find kind of funny later when he's when Amanda Plummer's character asks him why, and he says like, "I can't drive." It's like, are you serious? It's this. I, I thought it was this this grandiose kind of narrative device. Really, it's just this petty thing of like, "I can't drive." He's he's not he's not used to being a physical person, so of course he wouldn't know how to operate a machine. I think that's kind of fun, but it's also, um, what point does Adam Goldberg play in this movie other than to just demonstrate? Gabriel's powers and then to kind of provide some comic relief until he's ultimately killed um Gabriel tells him hey I need you to basically sneak into the police and steal this box of evidence if you will um but then we see Gabriel is better equipped to do that he says just go in during shift change but then he goes into the morgue puts the the security guard asleep takes out Uziel's body lights him on fire with just kind of like a gesture of his hand why does Gabriel need Adam Goldberg to do that stuff when he is more than equipped to do it even better than this human person? It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's just kind of put in there to be like, see, see how cool this character is or this these, these powers are? See what he can do? And it's like, I, I appreciate it, but also just like, what are you, what are you doing here? What, how does this move the story forward? It really doesn't. Um... My other big problem with this movie is that it seems 
meandering, which is weird. I, I don't know. I was trying to think. This movie is about is less than an hour and forty minutes long, and simultaneously felt like it was so long because it's trying to do so much. It also felt like it was too quick in the sense of it didn't give us enough information. Not enough stuff was kind of fleshed out. Um, and that includes, in my opinion, the Thomas Daggett character, who is supposed to be our protagonist, who is supposed to be going through some type of character arc, um, and doesn't really. Uh, the, the film certainly wants us to believe that he has gone through some type of change because he has that voiceover at the end ham-fistedly trying to explain or or make sense of what faith is and how how we can use faith to make sense of God's plan but he's essentially the same character at the end as he is at the beginning because we start out or our our introduction to him is someone who is saying basically I lost my faith because I was shown too much and it was horrific and I couldn't believe in well, in what? In a God that would support that? You couldn't believe in what, basically. So there's that problem. But there's also just the, the general concept we, we take away, like, okay, we get it. You lost your faith because you had too much information and you couldn't deal with it. Because you couldn't, for some reason, grapple with or accept or comprehend the reality that you were exposed to. Okay, cool. That that under that makes sense. I understand that. So then, in order to overcome that, in order to develop, then he needs to be made privy to or be exposed to a, a, a truth which is opposite from that, or or a reality that that um I don't know defies that opening vision. Uh, because I I get it. You know, sure. At the end, the the good guys seemingly have won the war in heaven. This horrible, despotic general's soul has been vanquished. Um, Gabriel has been, his heart has been eaten by the devil. Um, the war in heaven has now been won by the good guys. So whatever horror that he may have seen at the beginning did not come to ultimate fruition. Except it still did because there was still a war in heaven. So when he says, a war in heaven, by the way, in which... Uh, multitudes of angels have been brutally murdered, as we saw with uh, a vision in the, the underground mind. So the quote-unquote too much he saw at the beginning, he has now seen firsthand, has now participated in it. So how does that constitute an arc or a change or a refutation of something horrific? <laughs> that too much that he was shown... He has now seen it. So how does he get his faith back by having his initial misgivings confirmed? Um, speaking as someone who has gone through a roller coaster journey with uh, his own faith and has gone through deconstruction and reconstruction, I can say personally that there is validity to an idea or, or to the idea of um, finding new validation, new faith, a new journey in accepting and coming to terms with the fact that what I believed may be wrong, in fact, probably is, and then feeling the freedom of that release. Um, but that's not what happens here. In fact, I'm not really sure what happens here. Um, I'm not sure what path Elias Codius 
goes on. And I found myself, when, when he was involved in scenes, really kind of bored. Because I don't have an emotional investment in his story or in his arc of this guy who, uh, you know, who was in line for the priesthood and then lost his faith and then became a cop. There was nothing engaging about that. And the mystery that he was trying to solve, or at least the, the path that he was on to, uh, you know, uh, break open this war in heaven and kind of participate, was also not thrilling. Um, so I, it, it was really hard for me to kind of be emotionally invested in this movie and, and personally in his success because, like, well, who cares, basically. Not, not who cares, but also, like... Um, I, I just felt that kind of whatever morality or 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 um, profundity at the end was sort of ham-fisted in there and wasn't really earned. Um, and I do wonder, I, I, I do realize that this was also a Dimension film. Um, Dimension, of course, was run by uh, Bob Weinstein, the, uh, you know, half of the, the, the Weinsteins and the, the terrible Weinstein brothers, um, who were quite notorious... Let's you know take their the, the the personal atrocities that they've done off the table. As filmmakers and as producers and as as executives, they were notorious for recutting films, oftentimes without the filmmakers or the directors knowing and without them approving, recutting and re-releasing stuff um, to cater to their own whims. And I do wonder if that was a case here, because I think this film was filmed or, or shot in like 1993, but then released in 1995. So I do wonder if they toyed with it, because it does seem kind of disjointed. It does seem like uneven in its pacing in the sense of there are some scenes that go a little bit too fast. Others which like, okay, can we move on here? Um, and other scenes that also seem kind of out of place. Um, for instance, Thomas Daggett meets Simon first in one of the very first scenes. Uh, he comes home, he's like smoking on a roof somewhere and he comes home and there's Simon in his apartment and they have a weird exchange, uh, that doesn't really seem to get anywhere. And then there is the murder of Uziel. Thomas investigates the scene and notices that there is some weird stuff, which we later find out is weird because he is an angel. It would have made more sense if Thomas Daggett would have seen that murder scene first. Hey, this guy seemingly fell out the window, but it's also it's kind of weird. Like, oh, he doesn't seem to have eyes, and this is kind of strange. Okay, then meets Simon, and then the film. Like, it, 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 those those things should be switched. Like, he meets Simon before he's able to comprehend who or what Simon is. Now we know because of Simon's opening voiceover narration, but Thomas doesn't. And I think the discovery, we should discover along with him, basically. Um, I, I don't know if that makes any sense. It certainly made sense in my mind. But um, And also, in, you know, speaking of the voiceover narration, I also wonder, too, if that was something that the Weinsteins wanted, because not just were they notorious for recutting and re-editing things, but also, uh, you know making demands of, of reshoots and that, and that kind of stuff to include things in a movie to make more sense to the audience. Um, so I can totally see um, a version of this film in which that opening uh, shot with Eric Stoltz in the desert um, is just that visually kind of cool shot 
um, setting him up as some type of supernatural being where he's got the black eyes and he blinks and he's got his regular eyes. We're keyed in right away, like, ooh, there is something crazy different about this guy. And then an ending voiceover nar narration from Elias Codius, um, which attempts to wrap things up neatly. And, and, and I wonder if there is a version where those voiceovers are removed because Gregory Wyden just kind of wanted us to sit in a moment and feel what the what the film was trying to do instead of just kind of like, hey, here, let me explain things. So I do wonder if there is if this film is a case of executive producer interference, um, if there was recutting, if there was changes made against Gregory Wyden's wishes so that this film made more sense. And if there were scenes that were cut out and reordered, uh, basically, because, um, yeah, it, it just, it feels like a very disjointed movie. Um, I'm also wondering, and this is maybe me nitpicking, um, this idea that, um, once again, that humans are special in, in a, a beautiful way, but also in a terrible way in the sense of, um, well, we're very good at killing each other. Ugh, man, is that true, and also horrifically cynical um but because humans are so good at killing each other at, at, at committing atrocities against each other we need this general's soul to help us win the war in heaven cool little intriguing premise except the world world's history is littered with war criminals now i i I realize this idea of like, well, but this guy died recently, and so while the war in heaven has been going on, people that have died have just been kind of sitting there, their souls have been just kind of sitting in their bodies that are rotting in the ground. Except, we're also told the war in heaven has been happening for thousands of years. So, in that regard, Hitler's soul should still be in his rotting body. Stalin... Uh, Pol Pot. Um, let me see. Um, even you know, you know, serial killers, notorious serial killers. Um, H. H. Holmes. Um, all these people should be having should have souls that are just kind of sitting in their rotting corpses. Why is this general the one that like it's only it's got to be this guy? I mean, the the film would want us to leave it because of uh, cannibalism, which is horrific, but also. Uh, there's so many, there's literally countless horrific people to choose from throughout history. Um, now you get into a weird area, I realize, where it's like, you know what, um, let's create a world in which, uh, angels are fighting over the soul of Hitler. That, that is some weird, you know, weird territory. Um, and then, you know, of course, then it becomes the, just even the logistical creative question of, um, how do we make this film look like it's in the 1940s or the 1950s? So you want to do something contemporary, I get it. Um, but still, man, um, if there are thousands of angels, like tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of angels uh, fighting up in heaven, then they can spare maybe a thousand to try getting souls from a bunch of different... I, I don't know, this may be nitpicking, this may be me overthinking it, but basically the... The threat of this horrific person, I didn't feel like he was that horrific, and also uh, didn't feel like there was enough kind of effort put into trying to capture him as a weapon. I don't know, if, if, if this guy is really going to be seen as the key 
to winning the war, then maybe you send more than just one angel after it. I don't know. Call me crazy. But who knows what kind of budget confines they were working with. I, you know, I kind of get it. Um, at the very least, it gave us a, this gave us a wonderful performance from Christopher Walken, just having all sorts of fun. Uh, and a wonderful performance from Viggo Mortensen, just once again having all sorts of fun. Even if we also did have some really cringeworthy kind of tokenism, um, in which uh, a Native American exorcism was ultimately what saves the day and has this soul removed from this little girl. Um, it's very weird. Uh, it's very problematic. It's very kind of troublesome. Um, and just kind of is yet another one of the questions like, what were you thinking? Uh, that I that I came upon while watching this movie of just like what are you thinking, um, and yeah, uh, the only thing that he he directed, um, not a bad film, not a great film, but a, a very uneven kind of weird disjointed film. Um, but yeah, I I you know I this is apparently a cult classic. I mean hell, it it was successful enough where it spawned four sequels. Uh, two of which Christopher Walken comes back for as Gabriel, which I thought was um, a bit strange, but also impressive, considering that he is um, killed and his heart literally devoured um, at the end of this movie. But um, I'm sure there's some movie magic explaining away what have you. Um, but I'm not super interested in seeking that out, to be um, honest with you. And, and and also the Thomas Daggett character comes back, but not with Elias Codius portraying him, but as with a Bruce Abbott of reanimator fame. Uh, so talk about a downgrade. Um, but yeah, that is it for the prophecy. I, I am curious as to if you love this cult classic, if you think it is garbage or if you're somewhere in between, you can email me at you do movies badly at gmail.com. Tweet at me at Nolan fixes teeth. Um, chime in on the comments at battleship Find I do movies badly in the drop down uh, menu with podcasts. Um, and then also we are available we, I, I'm available on pretty much anywhere you get your podcast, iTunes, Google Play, um, Spotify, and Amazon Music. So um, feel free to leave me ratings there. I would certainly appreciate it. So end of the prophecy, end of September means October is coming up. And if you've paid any attention to my Facebook page, then you already know that I am very excited for my October guest and my October theme. So if you have seen the documentary horror noir a history of black horror um and saw the screenshot that i posted then you may be familiar with who my guest is he is the kind of the creator the owner and proprietor of blackhorrormovies.com uh mark harris who does have a you know who does show up in horror noir speaking a bit but he is joining me or, or has joined me the, the conversation has been recorded already he joined me to talk about um racial reckoning films which is basically um, uh, three different films that deal with three different manifestations of racism against blacks in America and how those people are dealt with. So that was a really fun conversation, a really uh, great and insightful conversation. He was such a chill guy. Um, and uh, there's going to be some fun movies coming up in October. I want to do something special for October, for um, Halloween, and then also just to bring in some other voices in this podcast. I was so happy that he responded to me. I was so happy that he joined. So that's going to be a, a really great conversation and a really great month, I'm sure. So thank you all for uh, joining me for this month and for this episode. Be sure to tune in next week 
where I will be talking to Mark L. Harris about racial reckoning films, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 